<laughs> because the facts almost don't matter, right? The facts of the case are that Ramos was convicted in a Louisiana court of something. I swear, I don't even know. They didn't right? even go into it. It didn't matter. Yeah, Gorsuch literally didn't discuss the underlying case, but he was he was convicted by a non-unanimous jury. And you know he's doing well when the conservative justices don't discuss the heinous character of his crime. Right. Yeah. Though oh god, that is I've I've talked about this in so many different settings. <laughs> the easiest way to read the result of a death penalty opinion that you could tell whether the guy was going to live or die, whether it opened with a pay-in to uh, the importance of procedural regularity or a very gory recitation of the facts of the murder. Yes. It's like you you figure out walking in the theater, am I watching a Henry Fonda movie? Am I watching a Charles Bronson movie? (laughs) Right. One of those two movies is about to play. Right. And so here, Neil Gorsuch opens up by breezily mentioning that he was convicted of some crime that was sufficient to get him life without parole <laughs> with no further commentary at all. Not a lot of things. And so, and so uh, the fate of the unanimous jury uh, rule was sealed right there. So here's, so the background is that Louisiana and Oregon are the only two of 48 state of 50 Try that in English. <laughs> of the 58 states, Louisiana and Oregon are the only two that allow for non-unanimous jury verdicts. The other 48. Yeah. Right? It's got to be unanimous. Thanks for coming back. I'm Charles Starr, and this is Hostile Witness a podcast about law at the end of the world. For episode three, I'm joined by an old friend from This Week in Atrocity, Randolph Bricky. We start with Ramos v. Louisiana, a recent case where Brett Kavanaugh took a perfectly good criminal justice decision and ruined it with a concurrence. And then we close with a tour around the country where cops can't stop arresting people who tell them to fuck off. This is Hostile Witness. Bear with us. Everyone has always thought that uh, it had to be unanimous. And I think a lot of people were probably surprised to find out that it was not required to be unanimous. Yeah, I'm surprised and, that the dissent didn't you know, say that this surprise that it's not unanimous in every jurisdiction, you know, this little quaint folk culture wasn't a reliance virtue of itself. It's like in New Jersey, you know, the gas pumping is wildly inefficient because you can't pump your own gas. In Oregon, you get convicted or you're denied justice by white supremacists. It's the same thing. Exactly. But I mean, they wouldn't have called it a reliance interest because they've been racist for so long. Right. In in, uh, the the laws in Louisiana, just to sort of quickly back up, in Louisiana, they have allowed for non-unanimous jury selection since... The 1890s, I think in Oregon, it is like the 1930s Mm -hmm. uh, that they did it. Yeah, literally the first and second waves of the Ku Klux Klan's surgeons in the uh, America, in the South, and in the Midwest and Green States. 
Right. And I mean, in, in Louisiana was very specific. The, the Supreme Court ruled that you couldn't exclude black people from juries. And so Louisiana very promptly responded by saying, well, there's no way we're going to let one black guy foil a conviction. And so juries no longer need to be unanimous. And then Oregon did something similar years later when the Klan had more than a foothold mm-hmm. in the Oregon decision-making and, process. And just contra to all of the people who talk, you know, heritage, not hate, et cetera, et cetera, the, the people of the time who enacted these laws were incredibly clear and specific, and they wanted no doubt whatsoever that they were doing these things for very specifically racist reasons. Right. In large part because they were running an election for them. This was how they got reelected. Right. It sort of predated Quiet Part Loud oh, yeah. when it was literally just how you talk. This was back when the CCC still got to be the KKK. Right. Ramos appeals from his conviction, and he argues that he was convicted 10-2, unconstitutional. It was a question whether they would take this case because it's been botched up since 1972. Mm-hmm. Like in 19- many things, it was botched since 1972. <laughs> like, and this one specifically, a similar case. In 1972, the Supreme Court takes two cases, Apodaca v. Oregon and another case I'm now forgetting the name of versus Louisiana. They take them both at the same time because they're the only two states that have these non-unanimous rules. And the Supreme Court has to deal with this, which is just a terrible case. And I'll get to Ramos But first, we have to sort of take a quick look at the lineup of opinions in Apodaca. First of all, there are like a million of them. Yeah. Because the dissents wrote so many opinions, but they, they're, those are easy to categorize. Right? So we end up with basically three things. Justice White writes for a plurality of four. Mm-hmm. And the White opinion says, I concede juror unanimity has been the rule dating back centuries into English common law. And it's always been the rule in the United States. And it is also true that the Sixth Amendment is incorporated against the states. Mm -hmm. However, part of my personal Justice White project is to pick through the Sixth Amendment and decide what is a core Sixth Amendment value. And a few years before the case... He said that the number 12 wasn't a core Sixth Amendment value, but that a criminal jury didn't require literally 12. And in Apodaca, he writes, who knows, maybe unanimity is passe. Yeah, it is ultimately an aesthetic argument because there's no actual, even an attempt at the facade of some sort of multi-factor balance type rationally blop de blop argument. There's not even a penumbra there. It's just a man naked standing there saying, you know, I don't think it's, you know, what does a jury mean to me? Yeah. And and it's like, I'm Justice White. You're not speaking my truth. It feels like it's a two-page opinion. Mm -hmm. Gorsuch can't even, like, clear his throat in two pages. And this whole thing, from, like, setup to reasoning to ruling, is incredibly brief. And what he says is, there are policy reasons why you wouldn't want to do it. For all we know, it causes too many hung juries. Yes, it it is that level of reasoning. It is cursory to the point of being contemptuous. Yeah. 
And so that's it. Four justices say it's not fundamental to the Sixth Amendment. The four dissenting justices, Stewart, Brennan, and Marshall are three of the four. And each of them write at least something, Mm -hmm. but they boil down to it's always been a core Sixth Amendment value and you're argument that it's not is just insane, yeah. right? Your your personal hostility to it doesn't change the fact that it's been unanimous for centuries. We have always considered unanimity to be important. And Marshall specifically writes, if the point of a verdict in a criminal case is reasonable doubt, how can a 9-3 verdict... Mm-hmm mean that there was no reasonable doubt. To mean there was no reasonable doubt, someone on the jury literally doubted. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they write these extended, very lucid, very clear, very outraged uh, dissents. And, you know, they, are, they do react, I think, appropriately with a level of horror at the casual disregard that White has for the clear and obvious, you know, virtues and rights protected by unanimity of a juror to the citizen. Right. It's like, you know, a man talking about the virtue. Maybe we can kill and eat the albatross out here (laughs) on the sea. Maybe that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of meat on that bird. Yeah. So that's (laughs) 4-4. And then comes Justice Powell. Just walking in like Kramer. Yeah. And his opinion is where everything goes completely haywire. Because he agrees with the four dissenters that unanimity is required as applied to the federal government. But he still has a hair up his ass about the new jurisprudence of incorporation. And he does not think that it applies to the states at all. And so therefore, unanimity is not required as applied to the states, which is not even something the majority believe. Sorry, the plurality mm-hmm. would be willing to scrap unanimity in federal courts. And the dissent thinks unanimity should be for everyone. And this ninth guy just throws out this completely off-the-wall opinion where he agrees with the fundamental necessity of unanimity, but only someplace. And because this man, who was like 70 years old in 1970, had a bug up his ass about this newfangled idea that people have rights at the state level, we had bad law. From 1972 to 2020... We now have this regime where no one knows what to make of Apodaca, except that Louisiana and Oregon still get to mm-hmm. have non-unanimous juries. It, it's, that, it's the sort of legal twilight that resolves in people going to jail. Yeah. Surprisingly and, common system. And so Gorsuch gets to write this opinion. And it's, the ruling is 6-3, but like an insanely complicated 6-3 to throw out Apodaca. And now, finally, unanimous juries are required in both federal and state level. And so I get to talk about a case where the result is good, but it's still sort of maddening <laughs> because there are so many opinions and so many of them are bad and so many sort of terrible portents in them. Yeah. Some of them are just dire threats. Just, I'm, I just write to consent, but I also want to note that I'm threatening you. And it's like, well, thanks, Kavanaugh. 
Right, right. I mean, that's the big one. Kavanaugh's, Kavanaugh's the big threat. So let me break down what Gorsuch says. He makes a big deal of the fact that unanimity is the requirement and it should be the requirement everywhere. And he goes deeply into the history of these laws. And we talked about it before. He makes Why? a strong case, but there's a strong case to be made. It right. is, in fact, a hallmark of Western culture. Right. He basically writes at length about the racist origins of non-unanimity, and he gets five votes for that. Just five. Thomas votes for unanimity, too, but he doesn't count because he doesn't sign on to the opinion because he is just like off on a frolic because he hates the substantive due process. So he writes his own opinion to talk exclusively about the privileges and immunities clause. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's not it, it's not bad. Like the privileges and immunities argument is actually sort of good and might be better in some ways than due process. But no one else cares about it. No one ever will. We're in a due process world. Yeah. And so the less said about Thomas's opinion in a way, the better. Read it yeah, yourself. I if believe, you want to. I believe all the, the support he has in his opinion, all the case law is, in fact, himself in dissents and other cases. Yes. Yes. It is entirely a conversation of and by Thomas within himself. Yeah, is... Thomas actually, his word processor has like one button that <laughs> you can hit. Yeah. And it's a parenthetical that says Thomas J. dissented. Yeah. Um, so who jumps off and where? And one of the things that gets, that gets two people upset, Sotomayor and Kavanaugh, are both upset by the fact that Gorsuch says that Apodaca doesn't even count as a precedent worthy of even getting into a stare decisis analysis, right? Yeah, yeah, that was really just Gorsuch, I think, you know, no, but he got, doing a he little got, backflip at the end. He got four votes for it, right? It's true. He, yeah. like, they, he basically was like, look, there's a principle of stare decisis in plurality cases, basically the Kennedy slash O'Connor rule, where whoever the fifth judge is that gives you a majority... If you've got four people on like a broad opinion and then one person who signs on to the result but a narrower reasoning, that reasoning is the majority reasoning. And that's the precedent that people have to follow. That's the guidance for the lower court because nothing else got five votes, right? There's a case called Marx, which announces this principle of how stare decisis works. But Gorsuch is like, this isn't a Marx case because there's nothing narrower about Powell's weirdo opinion. There were five votes for the importance and constitutional requirement of unanimity, and there were more than five votes for incorporation, and both the cases before and after Apodaca kept holding the same thing. It was always true that the Sixth Amendment was incorporated, always. I I get the argument, but at the same time, it's the kind of argument you come up with when you have the privilege of being a judge and what you say becomes law, because I can just imagine making this argument to a judge about a 5-4 case you don't like, uh, arguing about how the fifth, uh, you know, the fifth opinion does not actually fold within the confines of the four other opinions, but in fact is a different thing distinct of them in a different box. I mean, you can do that when you're an appellate judge. You cannot do that as an actual litigant. Louisiana didn't even bother, though. Louisiana Mm -hmm. was like, Apodaca is so weird, just 
clean slate. And we think you should just say that unanimity is never required. They tried to get Justice White's opinion back Mm -hmm. and make it a majority opinion. Gorsuch was like, since there's nothing other than a result, which allows Louisiana and Oregon to keep doing a lack of unanimity, we don't have any narrow thing to follow. So we don't have to listen to Apodaca at all. And that makes it so weak as a precedent that we have no problem kicking it over. Mm. So it's, right? it's like in the Matrix when Neo realizes that the spoon is itself an illusion. That's when he acquires power <laughs> over its presentation and manifestation. Right. And so <laughs> we get two kind of separate responses. The first is Sotomayor, mm. who really wanted to make clear that Apodaca is a precedent, but the reason she wanted to make clear everyone understands that Apodaca is a precedent is because people have been following it for 48 years. It has been the law of the land for 48 years, and so it's the sort of thing that you should overrule, and given the way, specifically, the conservative justices Mm -hmm. have been throwing out much more serious, much more solid cases, calling this not a precedent is kind of a constitutional dodge, specifically talking about Janus, the public sector bargaining case. And she, she, yeah, she foresees the next case where they just toss out, say, Roe v. Wade or some other benchmark case, Miranda, you know, the uh, the settlement case, uh, Flores in immigration, yeah. something like that. And they just say, well, this isn't even law. Poof. Right. I mean, and, and she's very, in a way, responding to the Kavanaugh opinion that we're about to get to, where Roe v. Wade itself is generally considered not very well articulated, yeah. like a, a good result, but the penumbras and emanations, and it's just sort of a weird, it's a weird analytical framework. And the trimester framework is a little constitutionally weird because mm-hmm. it's so practical as opposed to philosophical. People don't love the reasoning of Roe v. Wade, even the ones who who appreciate the results and she doesn't want someone announcing like that Gorsuch's rule takes Roe v. Wade out of some precedential well when when an Arkwright super conservative Catholic intellectual guy you know talks in this specific manner you can just assume he's threatening Roe v. Wade yeah well honestly at this point you can assume it The second thing that Sotomayor wanted to respond to was the dissent, and we'll get to the dissent after Kavanaugh, where she is like, obviously the racist origins of this law matter. Mm -hmm. Louisiana was racist in 1898 when they passed the law. In 1974, when they cursorily reaffirmed the law after Apodaca, I don't know that you could argue that the legislature or voters in Louisiana were materially less racist. No, I think that we have precedent on point saying that they were no longer racist at that point uh, in Shelby uh, because the Voting Rights Act should have at that time rendered them not racist. (laughs) It had been in place for, what, eight years? Yeah, it should have been plenty of time. Yeah. So uh, Sotomayor did not subscribe to that. So what we're left with on the concurrences is Kavanaugh, Mm. and Kavanaugh is on board with the fact that unanimity is required. But he has to write separately because there are a few sections which he is just not down with. And the big one is the definition of what stare decisis is. 
because he wants it to be a precedent, but he wants it to be a weak precedent. He wants to fit it into the kind of precedent that he gets to then undo. Mm -hmm. He talks about the cases that are not worthy of precedent, which are like the really obvious ones, like Dred Scott and Plessy. Those are like clearly bad, non-precedential cases, as opposed to things like the best case, which is Brown v. Board of Education. And he actually writes a lot about mm -hmm. the racist origins of the law, because it's kind of important to his foundational ideas of why these laws are so bad. And to be honest, I can't prove it, but I think Gorsuch plagiarized a lot of his this is super racist stuff from an early Kavanaugh draft. <laughs> because because, because that stuff sounds a lot like what Kavanaugh wrote in the Curtis Flowers racist jury case. It's hard to imagine, too, right. Gorsuch or one of his clerks having that native vocabulary. Right. But this is exactly like this is what in the Flowers case, Kavanaugh wrote very long and eloquently about how racist the jury selection process in Winona, Mississippi had been. And Gorsuch dissented in that case. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm not convinced that he really felt in his bones the racist history of uh, unanimous juries. No, no, when, yeah. In, in Gorsuch's writing, I, I do get at like a very strong note of opportunism with the argument about race history. Right. And I mean, I felt the same way, honestly. There was another case early this year. I think we may have talked about it in This Week in Atrocity, which was the, the Gundy case about sex offender registration. He was writing in dissent about some procedural rule about administrative law, and he used it to be really florid about defending the rights of the most oppressed and despised among us, saying that sex offenders deserve constitutional oh, rights yeah. too. Well, and it just made me mad that, yeah. the, <laughs> that the procedural argument was being used and like allowing him to be kind of the champion for the downtrodden. Yeah, yeah, it is offensive. He's over there, you know, pretending to blow Gideon's trumpet. This guy was not there yes. at the public defender office meeting. And so now we've got Kavanaugh, who writes, and he's like, the things that I find very useful for defining what real stare decisis is, and they all read like things that allow him to overrule Roe. It, it right? was like a family feud category of things that help you overturn Roe v. Wade. Right. He's like, one, was it grievous and egregious? And how do we decide that? Well, the quality of the reasoning and its consistency and coherence. And is it workable? And has the law changed since then? Have the facts changed since then? And you could also you could see him filling in the mm -hmm. outline because the the anal the the reasoning in row is awkward. It hasn't been consistent because there's been like fifty years of conservatives chipping away at it. Yeah, the consistency thing is very, very, very self serving very you know, uh, unclean handsy yeah the changed facts really feel like things like fetal pain and the ability like the increasing medical advances in NICUs so that viability has moved back like all of these things just allow him to box out Roe he even included a footnote where he's like Roe isn't even really the precedent anymore because we overruled significant parts of Roe in Planned Parenthood v. Casey while keeping the core holding so he keeps he's a already moved away from even considering Roe the relevant precedent. And so now how will he chip away 
at like other parts of it. Well, I mean, that was part of the original conception of Roe v. Wade and Casey in conjunction with each other is that uh, the actual holding would be hidden away safely in Casey, whereas reproductive rights advocates would spend years talking about Roe v. Wade as a distraction. And so now his second thing is negative consequences, and I promise you he is going to consider all of the abortions themselves to be the negative consequences. He won't weigh them against, like, female autonomy or anything like that, or to the extent that he weighs it, you know, thumb on the scale. It's going to be arch-Catholicism on the subject, yeah. yeah. And then number three is reliance, and he will not conceive of women's sexual freedom to be a reliance interest. And so I think all of this is his roadmap. It, part for, of the, the, the underlying speciousness of all of these quote-unquote reliance arguments is that it's just the judges looking in a mirror, basically. But no, yeah. he will not be able to see a reliance interest in the, in the existence of Roe v. Wade, despite the fact that it's been one of the most hardest-fought legal battles consistently over decades in the history of the world. Yeah. So the reliance interest, I mean, people spend their whole lives fighting and defending Roe v. Wade, but there's no reliance, I don't think, is what yeah. we'll find. What everyone agrees is that in all of these cases, stare decisis is supposed to be weaker in constitutional cases than it is in statutory cases. Because in constitutional cases, you're announcing these really broad principles. These are the actual foundational rules of how the country works. And to the extent that those are wrong, you can't really have a reliance interest in something that is Mm -hmm. anathema to the Constitution. It's also at this point considered like a fait accompli that we no longer have the political capacity to amend the Constitution. Right. We've lost that ability ages ago. Right. And with statutory questions, the fact that a court has announced what something means, the world structures itself around that. If the court says that one party to a contract has a burden, then people write contracts cognizant of that, and their rights are adjusted in response to it. If a statute means something, people make business arrangements in a commercial context Mm -hmm. than they are in a constitutional context. Because to do otherwise would disadvantage or inconvenience established market players. Yeah, yeah, and And, I mean... That's a core legal value, it's not to, you know... Right, exactly, right? Like, that's not meant to be glib, is that it, like, it really does matter for how people operate in the world. And so, then you get to the dissent... dissent is Alito just being really, really mad at how the how everyone else is writing about this stuff. And the first big one is he's so mad that they talked about the racism. He is peevish about it. It actually is a bad look. Why would you even bring it up? It's not relevant to any of our discussion. And anyway, I defy you to prove that the 1974 Louisiana legislature was racist. (laughs) 
He's like, whatever, whatever the cause was in 1898, someone did a spell in 1974 and so now it's purged of all prior taint and so therefore the history doesn't matter i defy you to prove that this was racist and furthermore i also say i will never have comeuppance (laughs) it's really bad like the purpose of it clearly informs its uh, it's important, mm-hmm. right? Unanimity matters because you can't get around unanimity by excluding black people this way. And, and you right? have to think about this in a functional perspective to really understand what's going on. Because yeah. if you try enough juries in, in, in southern courthouses, I can guarantee you that you will very commonly see like one to three black people, one to, or like two to four black people. And you will very commonly see peremptory challenges getting you down to like one or two black people. And I mean, Justice White's opinion kind of responds to Justice Marshall's argument, right? Marshall is like, look, the reason why unanimity matters is because reasonable doubt matters. And the reason why we prevented states from excluding minorities from juries is because they're vote in opposition is mm-hmm. a relevant part of reasonable doubt. And right? people, people will say, oh, that, that's just blah, 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 race argument. No, that is the core understanding of the jury, certainly in the continental United States American tradition of law, where the jury was supposed to be a reaction to and against the Tory judge. Right. The jury was all of the local guys flouting tax law and smuggling. The judge was the Tory asshole who didn't get a cut of their profit. And White was just like very huffily like, I don't think that the race of the dissenting well, no, jury matters. Think the number matters because he's being so goddamn glib with the basic assumption of right. innocent until proven guilty that he doesn't regard there as being any difference between having 10 jurors and 12 jurors despite the fact that they're mathematically, quantitatively is. White That's why just we have a jury in the first place because one judge is easier to persuade to convict you than 12 people. Right. And White doesn't care about any of that. He just no. dismisses all of it as irrelevant. And He only cares about football. <laughs> That's all he freaking cares about. If there's right. no football in the case, he just throws it out. And so Alito echoes that. And then Alito gets really mad at everyone writing about what a shitty precedent Apodaca was. He's like, well, of course he didn't write too much about the fundamentals of the Sixth Amendment because he explained a lot of that earlier when he said it didn't have to be 12 people. And he really tried very hard. And he and it's just like, I will tell you once again, the Apodaca opinion is short and summary and glib and terrible. And Alito goes to the mat defending it so much that I was 100 percent sure that he clerked for White. Like, mm-hmm. I figured it had to be true, and I even went to, like, Wikipedia to look up his biography. Sure, absolutely certain that he was a White clerk. And instead, what I found was even better, which is that he interviewed for Justice White, and he was not hired. Yes. So he's still trying to please Daddy. He like, still decided <laughs> that, you know, Judge Football Man is his real father. Yes, all these years later, he still needs to sort of find a home all in Justice us, White's mean, chain. In our own way, all of us are trying to please our own wizard. <laughs> and so then part three, everyone is dismissing the reliance interests here. And the reliance interests are that 
like anyone on direct review uh, is going to, who was convicted in a non-unanimous jury, or maybe even where the jury wasn't polled, we, we're going to get a new trial. And so he's very upset. Like this, mm-hmm. this is like some, I think Gorsuch estimated it at like 800 cases. Yeah, you know, they're And he's like, this is a real reliance interest. And we don't know if it'll apply on habeas. And like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both kind of responded to this. And they were both like, 800 cases isn't a lot. We've made everyone redo the sentencing when we threw out the mandatory sentencing guidelines. And we have had other procedural cases where we sort of forced a lot of retrials. That's Mm -hmm. just what happens in Sixth Amendment law. We change Sixth Amendment law, then people get tried again. And that's not like a real reliance interest in any way. It's just two states out of 50. And so I just like to say for my own benefit, I don't think the government should get to have a reliance interest. It's the government. Right. Why does it get to have a reliance interest in the first place? Why does it get to analyze the efficiency of its own judicial resources? That's not its job. Yeah, it's I not agree the customer. That. I agree with that, but I mean, I've gone off at length about <sighs> like government resources this as a reliance. Ju- I'm sorry, it's just uh, the government yeah. can't do this. The government needs some time. Yeah. <laughs> no. And so they get so he got really upset at that, but everyone like blew him off. And at length, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, Gorsuch sort of wrote. You talk about the fact that some of this might be on habeas, and theoretically you have an argument under Teague v. Lane, there are like some level of thing that we will make so retroactive that it counts on habeas too. But let's all be honest, we've never applied Teague v. Lane. We have never found anything that meets the criteria we set. And he winks and he's like, it probably won't be here either. And Kavanaugh goes even further and says that Teague v. Lane shows that this will absolutely never be made retroactive on habeas. He doesn't even mince words about it. He's like, "Where? no, nope. And then Alito closes. And this is he loses Kagan. Yeah, Kagan, Kagan just leaves the room. Kagan was the shock dissent in this case. But Kagan leaves the room for the last section of the Alito dissent because he says that this is less important reliance than some of the other recent cases we've had. And he inc- he's like, a lot of people want to overrule stuff. For instance, Justice Kagan dissented. Also, I think... Uh, this is less important, and this was the big one, right, besides just sort of kicking his co-dissenter in the teeth. He goes, this one is less important than Janus, the public sector bargaining case. And he goes, and the reason why this is a less important reliance interest is because unions have been on notice for a long time that we've been thinking about overturning the Abood case mm-hmm. that gave public sector unions the right to collect dues from non-members. And again, this is the court wanting to both be an actor in the public and not be an actor in the public, because you cannot say that you you have less reliance interest because I've often opined in dicta that I hate the way that you live. Right. I mean, I and just... that's exactly what it is, right? He doesn't think that Abood is like an, a reliance interest because he personally has been writing dissents that Abood should be overturned. And once a fifth judge joined the court to vote with him, the unions should have been preparing for the eventuality of Sam Alito personally fucking them. Yes. And so Kagan doesn't join 
that. I, I think that ultimately, you know, Roberts, for example, I think his overwhelming interest is trying to kill the laws he doesn't want to kill while somehow also salvaging some sense of stare decisis. I think that's what he ultimately wants to do, but I don't think that the vandalism to come is going to spare the concept sorry, decisis in the first place. I just, yeah, I don't know that it will. Just looking at how these folks are talking right now, or what, year two of this arrangement of the court, I just can't see it surviving year six. And and that just leaves, like, Kagan, who everyone was, like, really surprised to see on this opinion. And I gotta, I think I gotta give credit here to Linda Greenhouse, who I think wrote, and I think it was her, might have been Mark Joseph Stern in Slate, but I think it was Greenhouse in the Times, who wrote good, possible rationale for what Kagan did. And it's because there is a case, Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue, that cert has already been granted in the case, where someone is challenging the separation of church and state revenue rules, barring religious schools from receiving public money. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the laws dated from a time when all parochial schools were Catholic, And there was a lot of anti-Catholic bias in the country because the secular schools were so essentially Protestant (laughs) that Protestants didn't need their own private schools. The separation of church and state wasn't so strong that they were keeping Protestantism out of public schools when the Blaine Amendments were passed, but they did want to take out the Catholic schools as like a competitor. Well, at the and time, so, I mean, yeah, you could be both like a Lutheran minister and a school teacher at the same time in the same school district. It was just not really a thing that people thought about. And so a lot of the response to these rules relies on the anti-Catholic bigotry that led to the Blaine Amendments being passed in the first place, which echoes the arguments for the racist origins of non-unanimity in juries. And so I think Kagan had to swallow a lot of Alito not caring about racism to try to argue in the Espinoza case that the anti-Catholic bigotry that may have informed the Blaine Amendments doesn't change the fact that the separation of church and state is an important principle that despite the bigotry of that, now the parochial schools are yeshivas and the parochial schools are madrasas and the parochial schools are regular old Protestant Mm. private schools. The lay of the land is that it doesn't just affect Catholic schools. And so looking at the anti-Catholic bigotry shouldn't be a voting issue on the Blaine Amendment cases. And so that could be why she joined even the really gross parts of Alito's opinion, Mm. because she's trying to box him in for the Espinoza case. But of course she won't. Yeah, I've got bad news about outsmarting people who aren't behaving on the basis of smartness. That principle won't stand abortion clinics out of business or would have they all had to have the same building codes of like a an icu right they had to have an icu's building codes and all the doctors needed admitting privileges at a local hospital and like all of these things that showed no bearing to outcomes but were kind of explicitly meant to just eliminate abortion and the supreme court ruled in women's whole health that those kinds of laws that don't have any basis in science are a burden on a woman's right to have an abortion. And 
Louisiana passed similar laws, and the Fifth Circuit found, like, really narrow ways to distinguish it, and then they basically said, we think the Supreme Court, now that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are both on the court, we think the Supreme Court's going to overrule this, so we don't think this law is viable anyway. Mm-hmm. And so the Fifth Circuit allowed the Louisiana laws to... I, I think at this point we should just stab down stare decisis and just allow law to be created <laughs> through the interaction of the strong and the weak, as God intended. Just making the quiet part loud. <laughs> because this, yeah, a formal code of laws is just too damn hard. update to this case. Uh, Within days of deciding Ramos, the Supreme Court granted cert in Edwards v. Vinoy to decide whether prisoners who've already exhausted their direct appeals can argue that Ramos should apply in federal habeas corpus appeals. Spoiler alert, it won't. It won't even be close. There's never good news for long. And now, cursing at cops, the First Amendment right that the police never concede that you have. It has come up a lot <laughs> in the last year. There have just been a bunch of cases all in their own way. I've got three of them with different courts and how they approached the right to flip off a mm-hmm. cop um, in ways that are both ridiculous and some which they're like actually grotesque. I mean, the big one that I think a lot of people heard about was uh, North Carolina oh, v. Yeah. Ellis which was like this one I talked with Luke O'Neill about in Hell World. Um, but the, the basics of it were a cop is on the side of the road helping a stranded motorist. And Ellis drives by. He's in the passenger seat. And he drives by and he flips off a cop who then like jumps into his car and he chases him down. To ask a question. To ask a question. And it turns out that Ellis is a sovereign citizen, God basically. And so sovereign, he won't provide ID. The driver gives her ID. Ellis won't give his ID, basically, until the cop takes him out and arrests him. Usually, I get a guilty pleasure out of cops finally cracking under the weight of sovereign citizen uh, lunacy. And so I don't feel I don't feel good about it. Right. But every once in a while, I need to watch one of those videos. Uh, I I got sued by a sovereign citizen for violating the trademark of his name. So, yeah, I get it. I hear you. So then you're with me, except in this case, it's the cop who's in the wrong because the, the sovereign citizen hasn't violated any generally applicable law that he's claiming doesn't apply to him. In this case, he has a constitutional right to flip off a cop, and eventually the cop gets his license and he runs whatever, and then the only thing he arrests him for is resisting arrest. Yes. 
Oh, and failure to ID. Failure so, to ID. And resistance. Uh, oh, right. That's right. It wasn't the resisting. It was the failure yeah. to show ID. That was itself the violation. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, did the cop have probable cause for the stop in the first place? And the answer in any rational court, and in any rational court, I mean like almost every court, the answer is no. You, of course, don't. And so, like, I mean, he, he loses in the trial court, and the trial court basically writes a one-sentence opinion where they're like, your motion to exclude is denied. And so he pled, though it had real consequences because it was his, like, he was a recidivist. And so well, he was a recidivist. That, that section, though, about their sentencing guidelines, I'm looking through it, it's like he is a Category 2 or 3 offender because he has at least four prior misdemeanor convictions. It's like, Really? I mean, yeah. that's I mean, your sentencing that, guidelines for misdemeanors? Good lord, Yeah, people. I mean, yeah, it was bad, but it's also sort of really very specific to North Carolina that I don't know enough about. But, like, the sentencing stuff was all really weird, but it initially certainly triggered what people thought were the recidivism. And so he's, like, looking at yeah, more than a year they got for sentencing this, guidelines on misdemeanors. Right? Jeez. And so the state doesn't know how to argue this because what the cop says on the stand is a guy kind of waved to get his attention. And then as soon as he looked up, started vigorously flipping him off. Yeah, the, the, I got the actual phrasing from the trooper. He's like, number two, they committed a crime of disorderly conduct either towards me or towards someone else on the road or perhaps with other vehicles. Right. Again, something I was unsure of and had to conduct a traffic stop to find out both of these answers. So there you go. Right. And so he and so he drives after him and he conducts a traffic stop. And the state basically says that it's the community caretaker <laughs> exemption because he didn't know why the police <laughs> officer he didn't know why the guy was waving. He could have been waving at anybody. <laughs> he might have been he in could distress. Have been waving like a madman bit by you know, the tarantula. <laughs> Who knows? Right. And the and the court's like it's not that. Right. We none of us think it's that even the majority thinks it's not that. And so just on their own, the original opinion said that it was a disorderly conduct investigation and they decided it on that grounds. And the bar in North Carolina and sort of broadly went. Oh, yeah, it was a horrifyingly stupid decision. I mean, the, the writing itself is terrible and stupid as well. The whole thing is embarrassing. Right, but very specifically, courts have said you can't end run the fact that the First Amendment allows people to flip off a cop by then saying flipping off a cop violates the disorderly conduct statute. That's the same First Amendment problem. Yeah. Right? And so and so the North Carolina court retracts their opinion. And everyone kind of expects them to issue a new opinion because it was like there was a dissent. Because they didn't shepherdize. They didn't shepherdize. The court has figured it out. And so now, obviously, they're now going to say that it, you know, there was no probable cause. But then they don't say that. They're like, no, 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 because he had a reasonable suspicion of disorderly conduct because he didn't know who he was flipping off. It also is just sort of an endorsement of the very obvious test lying. 
The guy got in the car to chase down someone who flipped him off because someone flipped him off. The officer's own testimony, he was 300 feet away when this turned into a like a flip-off, and at that point, the man's a length of a football field away from him. The cop gets in the car to run him down because he's angry pants because someone flipped him off and he's Trooper Fancy Land. Right. It's, it's just like, right. do we And know? the guy isn't driving You have to turn off your brain. I mean, at some point, to be a judge, yeah. you have to turn off your brain. Yeah, and the dissent basically said that. They're like... All of this. Well, their own reasoning is both inconsistent, self-serving, and asinine, childish nonsense. You look at the beginning of the opinion, they say, we consider whether the inferred factual findings, the trial court's inferred findings based on the trooper's testimony tend to show the following. You know, they've got these inferred factual findings. Later on, they say the Supreme Court in the United States compel us not to consider an officer's subjective reason for initiating a stop. So what is it, buddy? Are you got inferred factual findings or are you not considering subjectivities? They got no answer. Yeah. They're, they're idiots. It's all right. It's all yeah. terrible. Right. They take advantage of the fact that the district court said nothing to go off on a frolic and they and they use this other principle to ignore the actual on the record reasons the and clearly unconstitutional reasons that the cop gave for why he made the stop, which were themselves not even true. This is one of those moments where you just kind of have to decide if you have laws or not. Right. And the Western District of Virginia in Clark v. Coleman basically had the same thing happen. I mean, Clark v. Coleman is like, it's another, like the factual situation is that Clark is just like a, the way the opinion reads, Clark is like a known asshole. Like he's, he's so belligerent. He's literally been banned from the courthouse, except when he has to be there for mandatory appearances. So here, I don't, they don't explain the background, but he has disrupted order enough that he's now been banned from the courthouse, except for specific reasons. The police know him. They see him make his court appearance where he is sober and acts normally. And then he runs into a bunch of cops. Basically, he runs into cops in the like the McDonald's parking lot across the street from the courthouse and he flips them off and they chase him down and they and they hold him for like of like a warrant check or an investigative stop. And they're like, we think he might be drunk. And like the reasoning basically comes down to anyone who must flip off, who flips off a cop can't be in their room. Yeah, right those mind. people will murder you. You're right. Cops yeah, are they insane. Li- they literally need the Court of Appeals to tell them something's wrong before they know it's wrong. Right. Cops are insane and violent and very prone to respond irrationally to questions of their authority. So anyone who would flip off a cop is obviously uh, in danger. It's community caretaker. You got to get them to a magistrate. Right. And so he denies quality. Like this goes to trial and the jury finds for the police and he sets aside the verdict in favor of... Uh, of Clark, because he says, there's no way, there's no way you interpreted him flipping you off as anything but him yeah, flipping look, you look off. Look at this guy. If and, he flips you off, you know why he's doing it. He's Clark. Yeah. And you clearly pulled him over. You said that you pulled him over because you thought he might be drunk. And so it can't be a community caretaker exception. It's if, also investigation. And you ran yeah. a warrant check. 
Like you set, you do all of these things, which are criminal process things. So your community caretaker argument that he was a danger to himself doesn't hold water. Like if you pulled him over and asked if he was okay and sent him on his way, you might have had a community caretaker case, but because you ran a warrant check on him and there was some papers that had to be delivered for, like, and they held him for 20 minutes while they went back to the courthouse and served him with whatever process was waiting for him. They're like, you lost any community caretaker exception privilege here. And there's a rule which says it can't be pretextual, and I don't believe you. Thank God for that rule. That this I mean, was it, not It's important pretextual. to say that there are, this is a difference between several different states in the terms of their laws and search and seizures. Uh, some states in some circumstances will, will allow the cops to behave in an utterly, literally pretextual manner, and some will not. But he then, he didn't set it for a new trial, because he's like, look, they held you for 20 minutes. And or 30 minutes or whatever it was. And so he awarded him nominal damages. He's like, I'm not sending it back to a second trial, you know, for damages. We're not doing that. You get nominal damages because I don't think there was any actual material mm -hmm. harm to you. But it did result in attorney's fees verdict. Uh -huh. So it's not totally painless to the police or the town in Western Virginia because he did get the attorney's fees judgment. And at least a federal judge said in no uncertain terms that this combination of test lying and taking out, you know, your mm. anger on, you know, someone who flips you off. Though I do say I hate the way the judges, even in a case like this, they always write that the flipping off, they're like, however oh, repugnant God. this vulgar act is. And it's like you can feel the monocle pop off, and I just think it's it a bit It is a bit much, much literally. <laughs> These judges live in the world. It's ridiculous. You're acting all yeah. aghast by someone uh, flipping someone off. Yeah, just a fainting couch yeah. moment. I mean, you're a judge. Right. You've seen so many things that are so much utterly worse than someone flipping you off, and you're calling that repugnant? But now we have to close on the third one. Which is House versus oh, Hodus out of the Sixth Circuit, where it's like, it's not like a temporary traffic stop. Like, this case is like actually bad, and the decision is everything even worse. about this case is disgusting. Do you want to set up the oh, facts God. here? The, so, as I understand it, this man, uh, while he was walking home, he was first accosted by cops who searched him for weapons, and then on his way home, he was accosted by a second set of cops when he actually reached his home. It's, it's unclear if they're a second yeah. set. Right. I think it may have even been. But someone does a Terry stop on him because he's a black guy who, quote unquote, fits and the this description. is just I mean, at this point, Stevens should. I'm wondering now, wonder, did was Terry a good idea? Has Terry <laughs> turned out well? Look at its progeny. Well, what, what is Terry is Terry is like the old school movie version of this same thing. Where in the old school movie version, Officer Friendly's like, Oh, what you lads doing over there? You didn't do no trouble. And the boys are like, Oh, no, it's Officer Friendly. And they all run away and everybody laughs and rides bicycles. 
But in real life, at that time and now, this is a Terry stop. This is what they yeah. have always been. Right. And so, but without even challenging sort of the logic of Terry and whether you can make a stop on reasonable suspicion but not probable cause, and like, which is basically what they did, let's just assume for the sake of argument, the first stop was clean, mm-hmm. right? They, they frisk him, they pat him down, he's not armed, they let him go on his way, and then he goes to his actual house where he lives with his mother, and he's on the porch... And the uh, cop just decides to start haranguing yep. him and asks if he lives there. And then he goes, are you sure? And he says, yeah, I live here. He's like, are you sure that you live here? And at this point, he's like, yeah, I live here. Leave me the fuck yep. alone. And as soon as he drops the F-bomb, the cop races up the porch and tackles him on his own porch and then arrests him for resisting. Yes. And there's no way to read that scenario other than he got beat up on his own porch because he said fuck you to a cop who wouldn't stop pestering yeah. him about whether he lived they in his own house. They couldn't even provide the barest scintilla of something that they could describe as furtive. And it is shocking to think how utterly blameless this man's behavior must be because absolutely nothing he did is something they're even attempting to describe as furtive, suspicious, except for the fact that he quote-unquote No, no, no they do, actually. Because what? No, they do. They do say that he, like, he reached for a waistband or some... They, they say a furtive movement, but it shouldn't matter because this is the motion to dismiss stage, mm-hmm. right? They're supposed to take the plaintiff's recitation of facts on the qualified immunity question. And for some reason, the majority spells out the entire defense in their opinion. And then they're like, though we're not supposed to consider any of this. And then clearly the only explanation for their decision is that they believe the cops because what they say instead is their qualified immunity decision is that there is no clearly established law that you can't kick a guy's ass without provocation. Yes, that there is no... Yeah, there's never been an appellate case which stands for the proposition that you cannot physically attack people without legal justification, is what they say. Yeah, and it's like, it's just an... And there's a dissent who's like, you've got to be kidding Yeah, the dissent is over there, you know, a stranger in a strange land trapped with vicious madmen. Yeah, because he's like, you... the, The... complaint is really clear that he was on his own porch he was being asked harassing questions he said leave me alone in rude language and the cops sprung to action and beat the hell out of him and it only stopped when his mom came either out or home it's a little i don't remember exactly but his mom showed up and was like it's his house what are you doing And then they kind of let him go, but they they brought him in anyway because they the he to cover was themselves. yeah basically because they don't even say that he swung at them he just like he just didn't like gently place his hands behind his I mean, back from, a, from an actual criminal law perspective the fact that they had actually charged this man is truly egregious because at no point even in this case with this recitation of the defense case by the court of appeals for 
whatever reason, do they ever provide any basis at all to say that he even resisted arrest? There's none. Even yeah. if the arrests were legitimate, he did not, in fact, resist arrest. They don't allege a single right. fact. And that, right. And the, and the district attorney eventually dropped all the charges. Like, nothing went forward. And so this is just him suing this them civilly for beating him up. Not, you know, some kind of camera must have been on this. There's no other explanation in my mind to, for Mr. House not being belligerent, drunk, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's beyond the record. <laughs> it's but, beyond the They don't say that any of it is on film. But something kept these cops honest, and they don't sound like cops you say honest on their own. I mean, yeah, I mean, it just sounds like there were conflicting reports from even the police because they did dismiss yeah. the charges against the, like, they they gave qualified immunity to the other police on the scene who didn't physically assault him. But the one who tackled him clearly in the absence of probable cause, and the majority concedes that it was without probable yeah. cause. They, they say, based on the plaintiff's complaint, there's no probable cause here. We indicate that it's possible that he reached for his, or it may be seen to have been reaching for, but he was unarmed, so he wasn't actually reaching for anything. It's just like bullshit furtive mo movements arguments right but they like they established that there actually wasn't probable cause and they still let the cops yeah. off on qualified immunity on the grounds that tackling a guy in that situation had no clear and established precedent and it's just a really bad mind-boggling well, this opinion, is the joke that, that it just is a joke that one tells like well there's no case law that says that you can't beat a man up on his front porch in front of his child on a tuesday it, right. it, this is that joke right. you can get increasingly more specific and it's it's interesting i just read an article this week that there are eight eight qualified immunity cases that the supreme court has taken to conference like so there may be a grant on and they're really really egregiously bad qi oh. decisions i mean one of them one of them is a case in fresno where the cops stole oh, a quarter one million the, dollars in cash yeah, and yeah, the, coins yeah, out of the, the one evidence where they said locker. That there's no appellate case on point to stand for the proposition that larceny is illegal in the cop yeah in the state of california or that a cop would be on notice of that fact that larceny is yeah that they wouldn't, well, no, they wouldn't be on notice, not of larceny, but because they didn't steal it at the scene, but allegedly stole it later, it's attenuated enough that it oh, takes yeah. it out of the sixth yeah. amendment. Like, like they figured out a way, like stealing it out of the evidence yeah, locker because... was somehow different from stealing it by pocketing it at the yeah. scene of the crime. Like they made it attenuated and then excluded it from any prior because precedent. And then there was like a case that was on point, but they're like, aha, it's on point for now, but the stealing took place before we decided that case, so it doesn't count for that behavior. Like, it's just really shitty all around. Well, and, and somehow they weren't willing to say that it was within the case of, like, duh. Yeah. Right, there's supposed to be a duh exception. If there's no to this, duh exception, and a cop yeah, stealing, we shouldn't give them guns because if there's no duh exception here, we are implicitly accepting that there is just a lot of duh going on over there. 
But the duh exception is supposed to be this is so obviously unconstitutional that we don't have to have a case on point. They they don't find that very often. And stealing a quarter of a million dollars in cash and and rare coins would seem to be it. Well, it's it's a disturbing insight into just how little these judges have ever expected from cops when it comes to their behavior, their conduct, their sensibility, their ethics, their morality, etc. We we apparently have just taken to taken it to heart and accepted as a fact that these are just insane, brutal murder bots who thieve and steal, (laughs) and they don't know better and cannot be taught better, except and and who is the guy? Who is the Supreme Court justice? who is most likely to knock out qualified immunity? Right now, it's Clarence Thomas. Thomas is the one who keeps writing these sole dissents, saying we should examine it entirely, we should re-examine it entirely. And when they're not, like, asking uh, for uh, the right to not be fired for, you know, waving a Nazi flag, the libertarians are really big on qualified immunity going kind of off the rails you know like reason has been writing about well it's it's been one of those like three or four issues that reason uses to save its soul yeah yeah exactly and this is this is a big one and so they and so i think it's i don't know where kavanaugh is i think gorsuch is a little sympathetic i know that sotomayor has been getting increasingly frustrated with what uh, I actually keep, counts I keep going back as qualified to the, like, immunity the, what is the motivation for these judges because this reasoning is so stupid and tried it has to be motivated reasoning so but the, the, at the same time you can't just say it's well they just love cops they love cops to death these cops are you know they are not individually liable for these judgments the cities localities states are well, I mean, it's. T- I is, think is look, it the insurance my, the, the rates? Sort of, I mean, what are we protecting? To, I, that's one of them, right? I think the dual. I think the dual purpose of qualified immunity jurisprudence. The the out loud part is that you don't want cops to be so gun shy that they themselves get hurt, and so we give them a really wide latitude. And we don't second guess battlefield decisions because who are we? We're a bunch of, you know, you know, Sunday quarterbacks or whatever. We're a bunch of so yeah. It's Monday morning quarterback. We lack the will to murder dogs. Right. We're soft, sitting here in a comfortable courtroom. Who are we to say what the macho police are are doing? And you know, like, but now the latitude is so great that. Like every civilian is at risk of being shot. Oh yeah, I mean we, we're over there pretending that yeah we're we're protecting um what's his name Dirty Harry Callahan, but no we're actually protecting his partner, the guy who we turned out to be the Golden State Killer. Right, <laughs> right, and policing, especially in this regime, and as like it just isn't as dangerous as like a lot of the public person like people aren't cops aren't constantly being killed they're very rarely shot by uh, not other the most cops. dangerous thing to a cop right. is a traffic accident because they drive around all day they're distracted bad drivers they break traffic <laughs> rules and flout them all the time i mean the, cops make a lot of pi cases right for themselves yes. okay and so that's so that's so that's and of course when they do one. drive around and cause traffic accidents they do so with full immunity <laughs> 
And so, and then reason two, I think the sotto voce part is that the law just protects itself, right? As big as the cops get qualified immunity, the prosecutors get absolute immunity for, for what they do in violation. And so I think it's just the judicial system circling the wagons a little. And so, but in these, and in these three cases, you see the range. One person gets harassed for, you know, flipping off a cop in a parking lot, and it means 30 minutes of his time while they run hey, a Hey, it means check. a trial attorney got and, paid. Attorney's right. fees. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then the second is a sovereign citizen who flips off a cop, and the court lets the cop harass him, and it costs him literally a year. Because he never should have been pulled over, and now he, like, by refusing to identify himself, he has committed a felony that he never should have been exposed to. And then in House v. Hudos, they actually beat the hell out of a guy. In front of his mom. Right, in front of right in front of his mom. They beat the hell out of a guy on his own porch because he was he got frustrated by a cop. Because he spoke up to a because he spoke up to the bully. Right. And all of this comes from the really broad deference, because, like, I don't think the third case happens without qualified Mm -hmm. immunity. If that officer has to worry about being found accountable or being fired, I don't think he does that. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. But I don't know that it happens. Well, the thing is, if you can actually hold them liable. If that, if there is accountability, then it happens once, and if it only happens once, it stops happening so much because that guy, this is not his first rodeo. This is not the first man he beat. He didn't yeah, just immediately start beating people up on their home step. No. Yeah, I mean, and like I just have to say, even in the discussion, they all talk about the house being ramshackle, it's a high crime looking like area. a drug, and yeah. it's like. It's just dripping with racism and anti, anti-poor anti sentiment the, because the cop is like, ah, it looked like drug houses there, I've seen. Something. And he looked like someone who breaks into shitty old houses who I knew. And it's, it's like there's just all of this racism just seeping through it. And the dissenter in in that case was really upset. I imagine. I mean, that's a terrible so, way to learn that about your colleagues. But I, the yeah. thing, too, is yeah. I just love the unmitigated, arrogant, unthinking, stupid, brute gall to say that this is a high-crime area, this place where I just attacked a man on his front doorstep, this high-crime area. Yes. <laughs> that man was safe until the cops showed up in his high-crime yeah. area. Uh, any other closing thoughts? Uh, no. That, that case, ugh, I'm going to want to, like, snuggle with my dog for ten minutes after that case. Well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for showing up for this journey of uh, misery. Amazingly, I have a second update uh, because right after we finished recording, the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed in Ellis and held that there was no probable cause for the police officer to pull him over just because he saw him giving him the finger. So I guess sometimes there is good news. Thank you to Randolph Bricky for joining me to Dan Parshall for Sound Engineering, and to Mike Weeby, Riverboat Gamblers, and Patrick Cosmos for the music. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Charles Starr. This is Hostile Witness.